Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. The word ghetto has taken on different meanings since its coinage in the 16th century. The uses of this term have varied considerably, from its original understanding as a compulsory Jewish quarter in Venice, to its appropriation by Black Americans to describe racial segregation in the United States. Daniel Schwartz traces this fascinating history in Ghetto, the history of a word, and examines how ghetto has come to occupy different meanings to different people in a variety of historical and cultural contexts. Daniel Schwartz is Associate Professor of History and Judaic Studies at George Washington University. Hello, Daniel, and welcome to the New Books Network. Glad to be here. Um, I'm wondering if you could explain the genesis of this project. Why did you want to write a book on the word ghetto? Um, Yeah, well, First of all, I would just say that I have a kind of deep, long-standing interest uh, in tracing kind of terms, concepts, images uh, across centuries, uh, across boundaries of space and identity. Um, that was very much uh, the thrust of my previous work on Spinoza's Jewish reception, which chronicled his shifting image in modern Jewish culture. Uh, I just think it's kind of adventurous and exciting to see what a particular concept or image, what it signifies in one time and place, and then, you know, skip ahead several decades or even a century and parachute back in another time and place and see uh, how the meaning uh, and application have often shifted. So I kind of bring that general interest uh, to the project. Uh, and then I think what's interesting about the word ghetto um, is that you have this term that's such a central part of Jewish history uh, in various permutations. Uh, but today, uh, if you mention the word ghetto uh, to um, most groups, uh, they will hear that term and think primarily about the African-American ghetto. And the Jewish history of the term, to the extent people remember it, uh, and here I'm not referring to a Jewish studies audience uh, or even to a Jewish uh, communal audience, I'm talking more generally, um, to the extent they're familiar with the Jewishness of the ghetto at all, it would probably be with the Holocaust ghettos uh, and not with you know the much longer history of the Jewish ghetto. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to kind of, first of all, trace the term uh, in its kind of various uses and applications Uh, And then look at this transfer of the term from Jews to Blacks and try to kind of explore how it happened, um, what friction, if any, it encountered, uh, and um, and what kind of how Jews responded, you know, to the um, you know eclipse of some of the Jewish associations by the African-American understanding of the term. Um, As you've implied, the word ghetto has taken on numerous meanings throughout its history and has been used by. well, as you say, um, African-Americans, so not just um, Jews. Um, but before we dive into talking about this history, um, I'm wondering if you could provide us with 
a definition of the word and its etymology. What is a ghetto and where does this word come from? Sure. I mean, in some ways I kind of resist providing a definition uh, to the term in my book. Um, you know, I'm not approaching this as a sociologist might, you know, has to have some kind of working definition uh, in order to determine what counts and what doesn't. I'm more interested in kind of exploring the word as a kind of free-floating signifier uh, and seeing where it leads. Uh, and I would say that, you know, one of the difficulties with defining it um, is that the ghetto, the word ghetto has been used to refer both to um, kind of coercive ex- enclosures where, you know, the state state action is confining a certain group of people to a particular district, uh, but it's also come to be used to refer to voluntary neighborhoods uh, where, you know, any segregation is purely de facto. So, um, you know, I guess the one definition that would perhaps supersede those is just the idea of some kind of densely populated quarter by a particular group approaching some degree of homogeneity. You know, in reality, it may be more mixed. Uh, But yeah, I mean, part of my book really is about um, how any attempt to write a history of the ghetto as an institution or a concept will repeatedly bump up against the question, what is a ghetto? Uh, What does it mean to be a ghetto? Uh, And what I try to do in this book is show when that kind of became a question, uh, when kind of originally clear, uh, transparent definition of the term, uh, when it became murkier, uh, as the usage of it became more diverse. if you want me to move on to talk about the origins of the term, uh, this is to some extent still disputed by some, though the consensus is that the word ghetto has its origins in Venice. And um, basically the island, the ghetto nuovo, or the new ghetto to which Jews were confined in 1516, um, this island was already known as ghetto, uh, and it's believed that it got that name from the presence uh, around 100 years earlier and dating back to the 13th century of a copper foundry on the site for the casting of ammunition for the Republic of Venice. Uh, and in terms of how you get from foundry to ghetto, uh, it's speculated that the verb jetare, or as it might have been pronounced, uh, in the Middle Ages, getare, um, which kind of refers to, means to pour or to throw or to cast, so it could be associated with the casting of metal. Uh, so it's presumed that that's how the boundary might have gotten its name of ghetto. And then, you know, it spreads to the island on which it's located. And then when Jews moved there in 1516, uh, it comes to be associated with the institution of the compulsory segregated and enclosed Jewish quarter. Um, At the beginning of the book, you talk a little bit about this um, idea, almost like folkloric idea of, or connection um, between the word ghetto and the word get, um, get meaning for our audience, um, a Jewish bill of divorce. Can you elaborate on this, um, on this connection? I believe that this etymology originated in Rome uh, among Roman Jews after their ghettoization in 1555. Uh, 
the first instance of it appears to be in the late 1580s. Uh, and you know, when one when one scribe refers to the ghetto as nostro get or our uh, our get, uh, and one scholar has written about this, Kenneth Stowe. He has a whole article about the origins of this uh, particular etymology, and he speculates that uh, it may have originated because um, in 1589 the ghetto was actually expanded somewhat uh, in a way that alleviated the overcrowding to a degree, but also made clear that the ghetto was here to stay, uh, that it wasn't going to be a you know, temporary passing phenomenon. Uh, and so as that reality began, began to register, uh, it came to be seen as a kind of divo- bill of divorce that Christian society had given the Jews. Uh, and in Rome, you have to remember that Jews had lived there from before the establishment of the Roman Empire. Uh, they had a history that went, you know, some 1,500 years more than that back. Uh, so the ghetto truly was a heightened uh, degree of estrangement from their Gentile neighbors than what they were accustomed to. Uh, in any case, this starts in Rome, but it circulates beyond that. You begin to see other uh, Jewish communities referring to the ghetto as their get. Um, and um, you know, there's a work about the Paduan ghetto from the 1680s that provides this etymology of ghetto uh, deriving from get, uh, and uh, it also makes its way into the non-Jewish world as um, you know, etymologists, uh, Gentile and etymo- et- etymologists begin to uh, adopt this particular uh, understanding of the genealogy of the term. Uh, and I would say that in the 18th and 19th century, this was the dominant understanding about where ghetto came from. Uh, and it was only, you know, in the late 19th century into the 20th century that the older uh, genealogy that traced ghetto back to foundry uh, came to uh, eclipse the idea of ghetto as get. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Um, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about um, what is conventionally understood as the first ghetto, um, which you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, vis-a-vis Venice. Um, so the Ghetto Nuovo in Venice um, in 1516. Um, so this is commonly understood as the first ghetto, I guess, or maybe it's not and there's con- contestation and you could walk us through that. Um but the idea of forcibly segregating Jews was not novel even at this stage or at this historical moment. Um, I'm wondering if you could explain the historical context in which this, in, the, in which the ghetto nuovo was established, the purpose of the ghetto, and the precedent upon which this ghetto was founded. Sure. Um, well, the Venetian ghetto is the first to be known as ghetto. That is where the term, um, in all likelihood, originates. But there were earlier instances of compulsory segregated Jewish quarters in Europe. So, for example, uh, in the city of Frankfurt am Main, uh, they didn't call it the ghetto there. They used the German term Judengasse or Jewish street. Uh, But that was established in 1460. The Jews moved in in 1462. Uh, So it's 54 years older than the Venetian ghetto. Uh, and it shared the same characteristics of being mandatory, legally mandatory, of being fully segregated, of being enclosed. Uh, the Judengasse was more equivalent to like a long street, uh, as opposed to the Venetian ghetto has that, but also has a large square in the Ghetto Nuovo. Um, but, you know, this street had gates 
and uh, was closed at curfew. So, um, so there are instances of ghetto before ghetto. There's also were attempts to segregate the Jews uh, in 15th century Spain, um, which uh, in the end proved abortive because the you know Spanish monarchs uh, Ferdinand and Isabella ended up expelling uh, the Jews of Spain in 1492, uh, while this move to segregate them uh, was still ongoing. Uh, so there is, you know, a history of the ghetto before the ghetto. Uh, and if one uses the term ghetto in its even so much looser sense as, you know, simply a reference to a Jewish quarter, uh, which, you know, comes to be uh, in many ways a normative usage of the term uh, in the 19th, 20th century, uh, you have scholars right, like Salo Barone writing his famous 1928 essay, Ghetto and Emancipation, uh, where you know, he uses ghetto there, not in the kind of literal sense, the technical sense of a walled Jewish quarter that is mandatory and fully segregated, but simply as a kind of term to be used for the medieval Jewish community, for the Jewish quarter, if you will. Uh, so uh, if you're kind of going to define ghetto as the Jewish quarter, as a kind of autonomous Jewish community, uh, then it is much more uh ancient, uh, then you could probably trace the ghetto back to the origins of the Jewish diaspora in antiquity, because the existence of Jewish streets and Jewish quarters, um, you know, we know of their existence as far back uh, as um, Hellenistic Alexandria. So, uh, so there is kind of this history of the ghetto before the ghetto. In terms of what led up to the establishment of the Venetian ghetto in 1516, um, the story for this really begins in 1509. Uh, when an alliance of armies that was known as the League of uh, Cambrai, uh, led by France, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Papal States, attacked the Venetian Republic and overran its mainland territories, the so-called Terra Berma. Uh, and many refugees from these areas fled to Venice, and Jews were among them. Uh, and there were Jewish moneylenders who were working uh, in the kind of nearby cities across the lagoon of Mestre and Padua, uh, who actually had contracts that allowed them to take refuge uh, in the city uh, in order to kind of safeguard uh, the um, collateral that they had uh, you know, from pawnbroking. So, uh, and, but they were you know, accompanied by many other Jewish refugees. Uh, and so for a time, uh, Venice simply allowed them, you know, to live in the city without regulating them. But um, then there, you know, began to be protest about this, uh, and um, you know, you had preachers and friars who objected to Jewish presence all over the city. You had um, Venetian businessmen who were worried about Jewish competition, uh, and so. You know, there was the question of what are you going to do with the Jews? I mean, at one point they actually ordered them to leave, but you know, then the Jews didn't leave. Uh, and so there was a whole debate in the Venetian Senate about what to do. And uh, in 1516, uh, they came up with the idea of effectively ghettoizing them, uh, sending them all to live uh, in the area of the ghetto Nuovo um, and making this legally compulsory, um, fully segregated so that all Christians who were then living uh, on the Ghetto Nuovo, in the Ghetto Nuovo, had to leave. Uh, and um, it was basically the walls of the Ghetto Nuovo and the fact that it was a kind of miniature island served as, you know, a kind of enclosure. Um, and there were, you know, two uh, 
bridges at the time that led into the ghetto. These, you know, were given gates uh, in order to um, keep the Jews in at night. Uh, so, you know, basically, this was the kind of halfway step. You know, instead of instead of expelling them, uh, you allow that you kind of it's almost like an internal expulsion. You know, the Jews can remain in the city, uh, but only if they're living in a particularly sequestered particular sequestered quarter. And, um, you know, there, it's kind of a, and one scholar referred to it as a halfway house between acceptance and ex- expulsion. Um, so, so that's the Venetian ghetto. Uh, and the Venetian ghetto was added to over the years. So the kind of first part of the ghetto is the ghetto Nuovo. It's the new ghetto. It's called the new ghetto uh, because in this original boundary complex, uh, it was a kind of annex to uh, the foundry, which actually was on you know the adjacent little island of the ghetto Vecchio or the old ghetto. So in 1541, the ghetto Vecchio was added to the ghetto Nuovo specifically in order uh, to house Levantine Jewish merchants uh, in the city uh, who were doing business in Venice. Uh, and so at first, you know, the kind of German and Italian Jews had to live in the ghetto Nuovo, and the Levantine Jewish Jews lived in the ghetto Vecchio. Uh, and then in 1633, uh, there was a new area that was added to the ghetto, which was called the Ghetto Nuovissimo, or the newest ghetto. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that this was an area that was never part of the foundry complex. You know, it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't called the Ghetto Vecchio or Ghetto Nuovo because it was associated with this original foundry. Uh, it was simply called ghetto because by this time in 1633, the word ghetto has come to mean mandatory segregated Jewish quarter. Uh, and so that's why it's called the newest ghetto. Uh, and so that became, you know, that was the last major addition to the ghetto in 1633. So the ghetto in Venice is made up of the ghetto Nuovo, the ghetto Vecchio, and the ghetto Novissimo. Uh, and uh, I think I may have for- forgot your last question. Um, the last part of that question would have, was, what was the purpose of the ghetto specifically, I guess? But I feel like you may have touched on that in the sensor, but maybe not. You can elaborate a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the purpose of the ghetto was, yeah, the purpose of the ghetto was to segregate Jews so that they would be living in one place so the city wouldn't be kind of subject to the pollution of having Jews, the contamination of having Jews, you know, um, gallivanting all over the city. Uh, Even though Jewish mobility by day really wasn't hindered, you know, so long as Jews were wearing the special garment, in this case, uh, uh, a uh, yellow beret. Uh, they were allowed to walk through the city uh, to do business by day, to visit Gentile acquaintances by day. Uh, they had to be back in the ghetto, you know, before curfew. Uh, but uh, you know, this was a way of kind of regulating public space so that the Jewish presence in it could be curtailed. Uh, but it was also a way of keeping Jews in the city so that they could do business there, and in particular. Uh, you know, the two major kind of uh, businesses that the Jews plied uh, serving as money lenders. This was the first um, business that Jews were allowed to uh, pursue in the, in the ghetto, uh, basically serving as money lenders or pawnbrokers, particularly to the urban poor, uh, whose ranks had only swelled as a result of all the wars that Venice was fighting, so that there was advantage in having Jews uh, in the city to uh, provide Christian commoners with loans. Uh, and then uh, in, in 1541, when the Levantine Jews are given a ghetto of their own, the ghetto Vecchio, uh, you now have Jews who also serve as 
um, you know, overseas uh, long distance merchants. Uh, so, you know, these were the two main uh, professions that the Jews pursued in the ghetto. Um, after Venice founded its ghetto in 1516, other Italian cities followed suit. And in particular, you examine the Roman ghetto, which, if I recall, um, was established some 39 or 40 years after the ghetto nuovo. Um, but with the establishment of the Roman ghetto, we are starting to see a change from the Venetian prototype. How did the Roman ghetto differ from the ghetto nuovo? Yeah, so the Roman ghetto was established in 1555 uh, in a Bull by Pope Paul IV, uh, called Cum Nimis Absurdum, uh, which translates as because it is absurd. Uh, and this was a, probably one of the most hostile, noxious bulls against Jews in all of Jewish history. Uh, it had various uh, prohibitions, various restrictions uh, that were involved. Um, you know, there, for a hard cap that was established on the creation of synagogues. Uh, it you know reiterate, reiterates bans on owning land and property, on employing Christian servants uh, and wet nurses. Um, so, and one of the uh, you know decrees in this papal bull uh, that were actually the first one that's listed in, among all the um, decrees is for the residential segregation of Jews. Uh, and so this is the origin of the Roman ghetto. And in fact, the papal states mandated the creation of ghettos throughout their realm. Uh, the papal states, of course, you know, uh, controlled territory beyond simply that of Rome. Uh, and so you had ghettos that were established uh, in Ancona, um, the kind of port city that was part of the papal states in uh, Bologna. Um, in 1569, uh, the the popes basically um, closed down all the ghettos and required Jews to kind of settle in either of two, in either the Roman ghetto or the you know, Ancona ghetto. Uh, so uh, by that point, you know, that, those were your only two options in the papal states. But yeah, I was also, I would say that the kind of underlying um, impetus for the ghetto was somewhat different than in Venice. In Venice, uh, this was kind of uh, more of a, compromise measure, you know, is trying to square religious and economic interests uh, by allowing Jews to remain in the city, uh, but, you know, restricting them to one area. Whereas, you know, and, and you also have to remember in Venice, the Jews did not have a long history of kind of residing in Venice openly as a community. Um, this is something that's for the most part em emerges with the creation of the Venetian ghetto in 1516. And in contrast to Rome, where I said earlier, uh, Jews have been living there for, you know, a millennium and a half. So, um, you know, the ghetto, you know, had different, there were different implications to creating a ghetto in Rome uh, than there was in Venice. Uh, this couldn't be considered in Rome the beginnings of a community. It was a more a rupture in the history of the community. Uh, you know, I'd say also the underlying motivation of the ghetto in Rome was somewhat different. You know, if the Venetian ghetto was seen as a kind of, as I mentioned before, um, as a kind of compromise measure, uh, the Roman ghetto was kind of uh, adopted for more kind of explicitly punitive purposes. Uh, it was designed to make Jewish life uh, as miserable uh, as possible uh, in order, hopefully, to accelerate their conversion. There's a whole kind of millenarian 
outlook that is um, ascendant in this period. You know, this is like the height of the Catholic Reformation. Uh, and um, there's this idea that, you know, if you kind of make Jews um, miserable enough, then they'll be uh, incentivized to convert. Uh, and that will help in terms of bringing the millennium. Uh, so uh, I would say that kind of motivation really didn't exist in the Venetian case, but we find it in the Roman case. Uh, so that the Roman ghetto is different from its Venetian prototype. The way I kind of put it in the book is that its underlying motivation was conversionary as opposed to largely prophylactic. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I'd say about the difference between the Roman ghetto and the Venetian ghetto. In the first chapter, or more towards the beginning of the book, I can't remember if it was exactly the first chapter, you talk about Jewish responses to forced segregation. And in particular, you examine how Jews didn't necessarily see this as a bad thing. Um, I was particularly struck by an account you provide of Jews ritually valorizing their ghettoization. Can you explain some of the Jewish responses to the creation of ghettos? Yeah, sure. I mean, I want to be clear. Um, In most cases, Jews sought to forestall the creation of ghettos. Um, You know, sometimes they worried that if the ghetto was established in a part of the city where they didn't live, maybe in an outlying slum uh, where they would be more uh, perhaps susceptible to uh, urban, you know, violence. Um, They didn't want to move. They, you know, also given the, you know, cost they would incur to their businesses by moving. Um, You know, they also you know, didn't want to necessarily live in a, um, they, they, they didn't mind the clustering aspect of the ghetto, but they didn't necessarily want to live, you know, hemmed in by a ghetto. Um, so, you know, they, they, they argued with authorities, secular authorities over the creation of ghettos. Um, when they were created, they, you know, tried to expand them uh, to, um, in order for to be less overcrowded. Uh, but, uh, they didn't really prohibit. Pro, pro, I'm sorry. Pro, they didn't really protest the very idea of the ghetto as unjust. You know, it, it wasn't perceived as uh, an indignity in that way uh, that would become more common in the post-emancipatory period. Uh, and we do know of cases where uh, communities uh, or individuals saw silver lining in the creation of the ghettos. So in the Jewish community of Verona, the ghetto of Verona, which was established in 1600, uh, there's evidence of a ceremony that was held uh, every year on the anniversary of the Jews entering the ghetto. Um, You know, they called it the kind of festival of entering the kind of courtyard of the ghetto. Uh, And they would hold uh, special prayer services where they would read Hallel or the kind of hymns that are recited on Jewish festivals um, and on the Jewish uh, new month. Uh, They would, they would parade Torah scrolls around the synagogue. There would be special sermons. We have, you know, a surviving example of one of these sermons. Uh, So, you know, there you definitely get a sense that the ghetto was seen uh, not, you know, as a punishment, but, you know, as a source of, solidarity and community, something that had helped this community to survive. Uh, Some have speculated that, you know, they may have been not so much celebrating the ghetto, but the fact that they weren't expelled, which would have been a much worse outcome, or that, as I mentioned earlier, they weren't relegated to some outlying slum. 
because the Venetian ghetto was right you know, in the spot of what had been the main Jewish neighborhood uh, in the center of the city. Uh, but nevertheless, you do have, you know, the kind of uh, greeting, uh, you know, or attitude toward the ghetto uh, that would seem to be more or less positive here. Um, there's another example of um, a rabbi from the 18th century um, writing a responsum relating to um, the laws uh, pertaining to um, the, the construction of, uh, of an Eruv, uh, of a ritual enclosure uh, within which you know the transport of objects is permitted uh, on the Sabbath, uh, and actually treating the creation of the ghetto as something that um, had made um, the observance you know of this uh, law easier, uh, had facilitated it uh, in a way that didn't you know kind of impose the same type of economic burden on Jews. So you know again, seeing the ghetto almost as an act of divine providence rather than divine punishment. So, yeah, we do have these examples of you know, Jewish communities, uh, Jewish individuals uh, seeing the ghetto uh, as something uh, positive, you know, not you know, pejorative. Um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the word ghetto came to America, but the meaning of ghetto shifted after making its way to the United States. How did American Jews use this term in this particular historical context? Right. So, um, as you mentioned, this is a development of the kind of last quarter or so of the 19th century, you know, in the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it's something that's happening not only in America, but also in kind of cities in Western and Central Europe uh, that Eastern European Jews are migrating to. But the new immigrant enclaves that are being formed in big cities as a result of this mass migration uh, these immigrant enclaves like London's East End or New York's Lower East Side or Chicago's Near West Side, these areas came to be known as ghettos. Uh, this in spite of the fact that these areas were not legally mandatory. Uh, you know, Jews did not you know, arrive in Ellis Island and you know, told, were told, you must go live you know, on the Lower East Side. There may have been various social, cultural, economic pressures that caused them to settle there, uh, but there was no kind of statutory law that mandated it. So, you know, here you see uh, an emerging use of the term uh, to designate not only a compulsory Jewish quarter, but also a voluntary Jewish neighborhood. Um, and the understanding of the ghetto also evolved uh, with this new application, especially because these areas were often seen as temporary settlements for Jews before, you know, that helped them to acculturate, but which they, or at least their children and grandchildren would ultimately move out of. So that the whole idea is that the ghetto is effectively a way station, a way station, you know, into American culture and society. Uh, so it's a clustering, but it's destined to be only a temporary clustering, even though, you know, for decades, the Lower East Side remains densely populated. And probably at one point, it was the most densely populated area in the world uh, because of all the ranks of new immigrants. Uh, but, you know, the, the phenomenon of Jews entering the ghetto, but also exiting it, uh, that comes to color the whole perception of what a ghetto is. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, so now we're going to shift our conversation slightly to talk about um, ghettos during the Holocaust. Um, and again, there's a shift in what this and what ghetto represents at this historical moment. And you claim that, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, the Nazi ghetto bore little in resemblance to the early modern ghetto, end quote. So how did ghettos during the Holocaust differ from earlier forced segregation? Sure. I mean, what it shares with earlier forced segregation is the aspect of force, right? This was, an, this was a revival of the obligatory nature of the early modern ghetto. Um, and yet, in so many ways, uh, it was different, right? I mean, the early modern ghetto um, was basically granting the Jews a place in the city, however stigmatized, uh, however, circumscribed, however circumscribed. Uh, as I mentioned before, it was a kind of, uh, you know, halfway house between acceptance and expulsion. And, you know, even though Jews were required to be back in the ghetto by curfew, uh, and even though the ghetto was often appallingly overcrowded, uh, nevertheless, Jews remained part, you know, of the larger society. Uh, they did business with Gentiles. Uh, they often had Gentile acquaintances. Uh, they left the ghetto, whether to do business elsewhere in the city or sometimes to travel to another uh, city where they would, you know, live in the ghetto of that city. Um, there was much more mobility. Um, the Nazi ghetto, uh, even before it became, you know, a cog in a annihilation of the Jews, which ultimately it did. Uh, but, you know, it was designed to segregate exploit, control, survey, in many cases, starve, you know, do away by attrition, Jews uh, in a way that just didn't have precedent in the early modern ghetto. Uh, And one of the things I look at in my book uh, is how Jews over time register that the ghettos in which the Nazis are confining them, bear nothing in common with the medieval or the early modern ghetto with this prototype that's a part of Jewish memory, right? Because at first there's some sense of like, okay, this is bad, uh, but we've been here before, right? We're returning to the Middle Ages, but you know, it still is a part of Jewish history. There is some sense of continuity. Uh, whereas, you know, when they realize that these ghettos are sites of mass starvation um, or ultimately of deportation to uh, either the killing fields or to uh, the death camps, um, then it's like this is a this is something for which there is no precedent, there is no prototype whatsoever. Um, 
So, you know, this kind of mooring of this Nazi ghetto and an earlier history of ghetto uh, becomes broken. Um, so speaking of ghettos during the Holocaust, um, I would like to speak a little bit about the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And my question for you is, well, I have a few questions about this in particular, but um, well, I have a, so I have three questions, actually. So I'll ask them all and then you can you can take it away. Um, first, how did the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising turn the ghetto into a symbol of resistance? And what role does this event and understanding of ghetto assume in Holocaust memorialization? In terms of the emergence of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising as a symbol, uh, you know, it's important to point out that this is something that begins even before the war uh, and the you know, mass murder of European Jews is over, right? I mean, the ghetto uprising happens in April, May of 1943. The war doesn't end in Europe until April, May of 1945. Uh, and, you know, 1943, 1944, early 1945, these remain, um, you know, perilous times for the Jews of Europe. So, um, but you already see on the, kind of, let's say, the first anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1944, where it's being commemorated in various parts of the Jewish world. And then um, in the wake of the war, it really became, I would say, the kind of most um, outstanding, um, conspicuous element of Holocaust memory, uh, you know, where, where you would have Jewish communities all over the world uh, who were uh, commemorating it. Um, and often you'd have Jewish organizations uh, that would be trying to promote the commemoration of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in different Jewish communities around the globe. So, um, you know, and and so you have to a- ask yourself, well, why this? Um, and you know, I think it's pretty clear that you know the upshot of this, you know, rebellion of this revolt, you know, seemed to be of Jews kind of taking up arms, defending themselves, like refusing to go as kind of sheep to the slaughter, as the as the phrase goes. Uh, and so you know, it became something that people could kind of latch onto—a story of heroism. Uh, that could, you know, perhaps compensate to some degree uh, for the, um, you know, the scale, you know, of the of the murder of European Jewry, uh, and so, you know, and, and just even in the way, you know, Holocaust memory evolves in the state of Israel, you know, when, uh, you know, in the 1950s, a date is created for the commemoration of the Holocaust. Why is it in April? Right, it's in April. Uh, in order to coincide with the outbreak of the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Uh, so, it, you know, it's on that anniversary. And of course, you know, when the date is first created in Hebrew, it's called Yom HaShoah, the Hagvura, right? The day of, you know, catastrophe uh, and, of, um, and of heroism. Uh, so what's interesting to me was to see the way in which the Warsaw Ghetto uh, kind of shades even the understanding of the word ghetto, right? I found one speaker uh, in, I believe it was 1951, talking at one of these commemorations for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, where he says something to the effect of, you know, the word ghetto uh, has changed somewhat, right? It's now um, not only, uh, you know, a word that connotes humiliation, uh, and passive submission, you know, but he says of dignity 
and active resistance. Um, you know, it kind of restores this idea of kind of Jews as fighting martyrs. Uh, so, you know, you see kind of the way in which this association of the ghetto now, not only with uh, passivity, but also with resistance uh, is uh, kind of activated. Uh, and also, you know, you would see even um, when I move in the final chapter, talking about the African-American ghetto, um, you know, there was this whole, during the, you know, race riots or uprisings, you know, in major American cities in the mid-1960s, uh, you find examples of African-Americans harking back to the Warsaw ghetto and in some ways being resentful of Jews who argue that there is no analogy to be made. Uh, you know, not entirely dissimilar to the whole controversy this summer over labeling, uh, you know, the immigration detention centers in this country, concentration camps, this idea of a kind of a term associated with the Holocaust being applied uh, to uh, an African-American area, you know, and this kind of provoking some controversy. Yeah, can you um, describe the process whereby the term ghetto began to be used by Black Americans to describe racially segregated neighborhoods more specifically and how that came about? Sure. Um, Well, I think you have to kind of distinguish between two um, stages in this process of the effective transfer of the term from Jews to African Americans. Uh, The conversion of ghetto into a term more commonly associated with Blacks and with Jews really began in the 1960s. Uh, And, you know, there are all sorts of digital history resources today that allow us to plot trends in the usage of a word with an exactitude that years ago would be unthinkable. Uh, And you can see just how uh, uses of the word ghetto in the 1960s and 1970s just kind of like shot up. Well, you know, the the graph, you know, is just a sharp rise uh, in uh, uses of ghetto. Uh, you can also see how phrases like Negro ghetto or Black ghetto began to surpass uh, phrases like Jewish ghetto in popular usage. So this is where I'd say the new Black referent for the term becomes mainstream uh, in the 1960s, uh, if still a focus of controversy. Uh, but in fact, African-Americans had already been using the term to refer to residential segregation of Blacks already back in the 19-teens. These were the first instances of it that I was able to discover, uh, centering on a period uh, in American history uh, from around 1910 to 1917, when um, cities were passing, primarily southern and midwestern, and southern and midwestern cities were passing laws that uh, were kind of like municipal zoning ordinances that prohibited blacks from settling on blocks, the majority of which uh, were white. Uh, and it was also vice versa, but the you know intent was basically to keep blacks out of white neighborhoods and hemmed into their own uh, neighborhoods. Uh, so these were actually you know kind of like statutory laws preventing uh, blacks from settling outside black areas. Uh, and eventually they were found unconstitutional. Uh, in a Supreme Court case in 1917. Uh, But, you know, this didn't stop the process of segregation of Blacks. There were other methods that were used from uh, racial restrictive covenants uh, that uh, were only found uh, unconstitutional. 
uh, or at least where the state was prohibited from enforcing them. In 1948, you have the whole phenomenon of, you know, redlining, uh, prevent, you know, discriminating against uh, blacks and the granting of mortgages, uh, denying blacks home insurance, uh, you know, basically preventing them from moving into the suburbs. Uh, you have simple violence against, you know, African Americans who seek to move into white neighborhoods. Uh, realtors steering uh, blacks away from white neighborhoods. So there's a whole, you know, host of uh, factors that contribute to the continued uh, segregation of blacks, uh, even at a time where, you know, for Jews, um, you know, increasingly, particularly by the post-war era, you know, they are moving into the suburbs uh, in droves. How did Jews respond to um, Black Americans appropriating and using the word ghetto? Was there did this ruffle feathers or not so much? No, so I mean, Jews responded uh, in a mixed way. Um, you know, some Jews uh, not only supported it but contributed to it. Right? They, um, you have, let's say, Jewish, uh, you know, historians who are Jews. Um, Thinking like someone like Gilbert Osofsky, who wrote a famous book about the Harlem uh, Harlem in the 1960s, or Alan Spear, who wrote a, a book about Black Chicago. I mean, these were people who were Jews, um, who were in many ways arguing that the only true instance of ghettoization on American soil were the African-American ghettos that existed, because these truly were not way stations, right? They were not, you know, these kind of like temporary holding centers for African-Americans migrating to northern cities from the south, you know, and just, you know, kind of getting used to the city, uh, acculturating uh, before moving, you know, dispersing uh, into um, other neighborhoods, into the suburbs. Uh, These were, you know, areas that blacks couldn't get out of. Uh, So, um, you know, it was different uh, in that sense. Uh, So you have Jews who are, you know, arguing that these, you know, these areas and really only these areas in American context are ghettos. Uh, you also had some American Jews who uh, either responded in a way that was somewhat, you know, bemused or curious, right? Or how awkward, how strange it is that a word that so much is a, so much a part of Jewish history now has come to be associated with them, right? You know, with, with blacks as opposed to Jews, right? Some sense of how you know, the term is changing and that kind of raising questions about uh, what it means to be Jewish. Uh, And then you have some Jewish intellectuals who are blasting the appropriation, basically saying this is illegitimate, Uh, generally doing so by invoking the Holocaust ghetto. So again, similar to what I was saying earlier, you know, when the Holocaust ghetto is your standard of what a ghetto is, even though, as I said earlier, in many ways, this was an anomaly in terms of the history of the ghetto. Uh, but given that it was the most recent Jewish incarnation of the ghetto, uh, you know, it was seen, you know, as um, in many ways, blasphemous uh, as a kind of betrayal of Jewish history and Jewish memory uh, to um, claim that these areas were ghettos when, you know, the association of ghettos with, with, with barbed wire uh, and um, guards, armed guards, and, you know, seeing these ghettos as way stations, but way stations not to, uh, you know, assimilation, but to annihilation. Uh, so, um, you know, you, like, there was a Jewish intellectual in the 1960s named Marie Sirkin, uh, who wrote a very critical article about the whole issue of de facto segregation, 
uh, where she basically raised this issue about the ghetto and, you know, said, you know, there's a new usage of the term and criticizing this usage. And this, you know, continues in later decades as well. Um, when the Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum opened in 1993 in Washington, uh, there was an article that was written by an American Jewish author, Melvin Jules Biquette, uh, in the Washington Post that was very critical of the museum, uh, which it saw as kind of like sapping the Holocaust of its Jewish specificity uh, by you know, essentially adapting it you know, to uh, you know, a whole American vocabulary, a whole American lexicon. Uh, and you know, in this context, he seized on the appropriation of ghetto uh, and said, you know, the only true, essentially the only true ghetto, again, firstly, he said you know, ghetto is a Jewish thing. It's not a black thing. Uh, and then he said, you know, there's no barbed wire. There are no guard towers on 125th Street. In other words, referring to Harlem. So, um, you know, this this kind of I'd say, you know, you see less of this today, uh, of this kind of resistance to the new application of the term. Um, but, you know, to some extent, it still it still exists. Thus, towards the end of the book, you talk about um, the term being appropriated and used in a different way. Um, and so not only has the term been appropriated by black Americans, it has also been used by Palestinians to describe their situation in the state of Israel. Um, some Palestinians, as you demonstrate, call themselves, quote, the Jews of the Jews. Can you elaborate on this? You know, this actually begins, although I don't really write about it so much in the book, but it begins among um, Arabs, uh, Arab citizens of Israel after the establishment of the state, after the War of the Independence and the establishment mm-hmm. of the state in 1948. Uh, but there remained uh, a military occupation of uh, Arabs living in Israel, uh, you know, who are for the most part you know, restricted to their own communities. If they wanted to leave, they actually needed to get permits to leave and travel elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, during, you know, when, when protest of this, you know, emerged and began to grow, um, you know, there was, you know, attempt to kind of portray uh, what the Jewish Israelis were doing as a kind of ghettoization. Uh, you know, with the um, 1967 war, Israeli conquest of the West Bank and in particular Gaza, um, Gaza, you know, the association of Gaza with a ghetto, uh, even though it's kind of gotten in some ways more uh, powerful in the last, you know, 13 years or so with, you know, since Hamas came to power and the whole blockade uh, and boycott of Gaza. Um, But in fact, there was a film made in the 1980s that was called Gaza Ghetto. Uh, so the whole argument of Gaza as a ghetto, and here too you see, you know, attempts to kind of appropriate the mantle of the Warsaw ghetto and fierce resistance to this on the part of most Jewish Israelis. Um, there was even, you know, there's a book that came out um, around two or three years ago um, by a Lebanese author uh, that was called, uh, was translated into actually French as Les Enfants du Ghetto, the Children of the Ghetto. I believe it's you know, translated into English something different. My, my name is mm-hmm. Adam or something like that. But this is actually about um, during the War of Independence in uh, cities, uh, you know, were largely Arab cities like Lida and Ramla that, you know, uh, during the period uh, in which they were being occupied, uh, the Arabs, you know, who were not expelled uh, in, you know, these conquests uh, were effectively ghettoized. Uh, and they were, this is where the term actually even enters the Arab lexicon. Uh, 
Uh, and to this day, you know, the areas of these cities that are primarily Arab were often called the ghetto. Uh, but, you know, during the, during the war, uh, you had people being restricted to these areas uh, for a time. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's, you know, another kind of example of the um, resonance of that term in the kind of context of the Palestinians. So we're approaching the end of our interview, um, but I have one final question for you. What are you working on now? Um, so I've really just begun a new project. It's very much in its incipient stages, but um, I'm working on what will be a kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural history of the Lower East Side that traces this neighborhood from its... Um, you know, for the first major wave of immigrants in the mid 19th century who were uh, from German speaking land. So it's German American heyday in the mid 19th century uh, through the Jewish Lower East Side, through the kind of Puerto Rican and Dominican Lower East Side, uh, and up to the kind of present day gentrification of the area. So that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Um, so the book, Ghetto, The History of a Word, is out now, and it's a fantastic read, and I highly recommend it. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.